Remember that uh, when they finished hearing Jesus speak uh, these words that he spoke, um, they were amazed because he spoke as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so uh, let's come again before God um, with all the thoughts of our morning, uh, buzzing away in our minds and asking him that he would allow us uh, to put them in one place, important, valuable, maybe even interesting as they have been, but hear a word of life and that God will help, uh, will take those words uh, that are on a page and make them live in our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that as we uh, come to your feet now at the mountain, so to speak, and as we submit our hearts and minds and lives to you, so you would add blessing upon blessing and grant us your spirit that we would be the righteous people that you call us to be. And we pray it for your own great glory and in your own great name. Amen. Mm -hmm. A few years ago I had an operation which required a general anaesthetic. Uh, Now I don't know if you've ever had an operation. The best thing about surgery is the pre-op drug that they give you, uh, being illegal in normal circumstances, but uh, when you're in an operation, uh, they're designed to relax you. But fundamentally just send you right up into the cloud. And uh, I laughed hilariously. I found the most ordinary thing, massive, uh, massively hilarious, for about an hour before that. <laughs> anyway, eventually the nurse came along with the trolley and loaded uh, me onto the, you know, the trolley. I'm horizontal on the trolley. I'm really only half there. And I'm watching the world go by vertically, right? These lights go past over the top of me. Boom, boom. And in a slightly altered mind state, that, that's pretty... Psychedelic. <laughs> and suddenly I start getting worried. This looks like an operation, actually looks like on TV, right? You've seen this in AR and that sort of thing. Uh, I make it down to the theatre and there are these guys who look like the guys on TV. They've got masks on and all that kind of stuff. And the anaesthetist hooks me up and says that I'll be gone uh, by the time he counts to ten. So he starts counting down. Ten. Nine. Eight. And I was going well, I can hear him counting. But he gets to about six. And I realise that I can't breathe. The anaesthetic has relaxed my lungs completely. And this strikes me as an important fact. <laughs> uh, that, that I can't breathe. And so I figure I should let the guys in the mask know this important fact. That I can't breathe. But my lungs are relaxed. So not only can't I breathe, I can't talk either. And, and suddenly I realise that I'm about to die. Uh, because I can't breathe and I can't tell anyone about the fact that I can't breathe. I'm going to suffocate. Uh, worry, anxiety are words that accurately understate my state of mind at that time. Uh, I was utterly and completely powerless. Now most of our worries are not nearly so dramatic but I know less paralyzing for it. We're a worried age. I did a little research on this. Apparently 43% of all adults suffer health effects due to worry and stress. 75 to 90% of all visits to primary care doctors are stress-related complaints or disorders. Worry has been linked to all the leading causes of death, including heart disease, cancer, lung ailments, accidents, psoriasis and suicide. Hundreds of thousands of workers are absent on an average workday because of stress-related complaints. 
Australia is said to be responsible for more than half of the work days lost annually because of absenteeism. 43% of all employee turnover is related to job stress. And mental distress and worry can even lead to death. And if you add uh, to the list the mental fatigue of nights without sleep and days without peace, and you get a glimpse of the havoc that worry plays in destroying the quality and quantity of life these days. And you may know something of this story personally. And to this, Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will, uh, or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Uh, in verses 19 to 24 of this chapter, uh, Jesus gives us another do not. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Uh, but the fact is, he goes on to explain, that you simply cannot serve God and wealth. Your heart is just not big enough for two masters. Now that is a challenging word to a relentlessly materialistic age. Uh, although in one sense it's a word that's a little bit removed from us. And so, uh, despite the title of the talk today, a consequence of some miscommunication between me and my sponsors, uh, we're not going to deal with that, uh, those few paragraphs in any detail. I want to suggest that the next section speaks to us, if anything, an even bigger challenge that's actually the basis of his words in verses 19 to 24. To an anxious, stressed-out culture, Jesus says, do not worry. And what we need to do this afternoon is figure out how we can possibly put in place the kinds of convictions that will make it possible for us to obey our Lord. Jesus spells them out uh, for us as he goes on to explain. Uh, in speaking about life, or literally soul, uh, is the Greek word behind that, uh, and body, Jesus is dealing with two fundamental categories of human existence. Uh, sustenance for life and, and shelter for health, not so much housing but clothes. Now, right up front, it's worth recognising that these are the bare necessities of life, right? I wonder if anything is worth worrying about, these are the things that are worth worrying about. Of course, these are not the things that we typically, in uh, modern, western, mostly middle-class Australia, actually do worry about. Uh, they're different in two ways. On the one hand, our concerns focus much more on what you might call the kind of psychological bare necessities, the things of the mind rather than the things of the body. That's because mostly the things of the body are taken care of. Uh, to be loved and to love, to be connected to people and perhaps to a particular special person in a profound way, uh, to achieve something that is of real and lasting benefit in life, or at least a serious financial benefit, and to be respected for it. And as I say, on the other hand, we do have worries about the body, but they're not for the necessities, they're usually for the desires or even for the luxuries of life. Uh, a better car, a bigger house, or at least the resources to pay off the loans that we've taken out to pay for those things since we decided we couldn't do without them. Better food, spunky clothes, higher marks, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, my point is that either way, Jesus' dissection of the pathology of worry will be every bit as relevant to us who do not struggle for the necessities which he addresses as it was for his original listeners. In fact, his words will apply even more strongly to us. <coughs> so what does he say? First with respect to life, and then with respect to the body. 
You see it in uh, chapter 6 and verse 25, which you have on your outlines there. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? Jesus' point is made in a straightforward argument. He says, don't worry about life, and I'll tell you why not to. Three simple points. Point number one, check out the birds of the air as an object lesson. They don't worry, racing around, sowing, reaping, gathering into barns, shoving money into superannuation accounts, and so on and so on. You know why? Because your Heavenly Father feeds them. That's point one. Point two, guess what? You are of more... I mean... This may not surprise you with respect to you, but it may surprise you with respect to the person sitting next to you. You are of more value than the birds. And therefore, point three, since he is your heavenly father, how much more will he look after you than he does the birds? And so since they're okay, there is no need for you to worry either about your food. Well, Moy makes exactly the same argument about that other necessity of life, the body. Verse 28. Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But it got so clothed, the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Uh, that's to keep it going, not to eat. Just in case you didn't get that. Uh, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Why do you worry about clothing, he says? Again, it's a simple argument. Point one. Consider this time the lilies of the field. They grow and develop and have shelter, and yet they don't rush around and do all the things that are necessary for clothing this time. Toiling and spinning. To do with our wheels and stuff. In fact, so spectacular are they that not even Solomon, says Jesus, the richest and most luxurious man. In all of the history of Israel, not even Solomon looks so good. What's more, and this is the crucial issue, right? It was God who clothed them, verse 3. But point 2, if God so clothes them, when they are of entirely temporary value, here today, gone tomorrow, used as fuel for the fire in the oven, then point 3, will he not much more clothe you, since you are of greater value? And with this one, there followed a gentle punch of the gut, you of little faith. And so Jesus concludes summing up what he just said in verse 31, Therefore do not worry, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Don't worry about those things. It's the Gentiles who worry and strive. It's the Gentiles who don't have the faintest clue about God, your Heavenly Father, that one who knows your very needs before you ask Him. So this do not, this negative do not, is followed immediately then by positive do in verse 33. But strive first for the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. He says, rather than striving after those things, fretting and elbowing people, living life tinged with a quiet desperation, what Jesus says is strive first for the kingdom of God. 
and his righteousness. Instead of the frenzy that worry over life and limb creates, replace that with a firm and calm and steady resolve to put the reign of God and the command of God as the first priority in your life. Speaking the, first the kingdom means desiring to enter that kingdom, exercising your will to submit to that kingdom, to participate in spreading that kingdom, to sacrifice as you can your time and energy and ability and money for the growth of that kingdom. That's seeking first the kingdom of God. Likewise, striving for the righteousness that is of God is to make the first priority of life that exceeding righteousness which has been our theme right through, if you remember, from chapter 5. And for which you may be persecuted. Far from murdering or even hating, seeking peace with others. Far from adultery, not even looking at another in order to desire having them. Far from keeping your oaths, not even making oaths, letting your yes be a plain and binding yes, and so on and so on. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Jesus says, as you do that, as you do that, the kingdom and righteousness and all these things will be added to you. God will look after them for you. Now, key, of course, is the basis on which Jesus issues this dual command. His do not, do not worry, and his do, his do seek first the kingdom of God. Uh, in fact, it's the basis of his entire Sermon on the Mount, which is always the basis of Christian living. That God really is king. That God really is king in Jesus. That the kingdom of God really has come. That God in Christ really does rule the world in all his power. And the question that these words, as in the last week and the week before and the week before that, the question that these words of Jesus put to us with enormous clarity and power and simplicity is simply this. Is it true? Do you believe it? Do you actually believe it? Enough to risk something for, enough even to stop worrying about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink and what you will wear. Do you think God actually is that alive? Now, I don't want you to answer too quickly, okay? Don't answer too quickly, for there's a powerful lot of evidence to the contrary. Uh, evidence which is massively influential in our culture. Uh, two things stand out in particular. First, there's the sheer weight of suffering that takes place in this world. Which seems to give lie to the fact, doesn't it, that God is King, that Jesus is Lord, and that he would provide reliably for anyone. I mean, we are more aware of that with pictures of babies killed in bombing than perhaps at any other time in recent memory. Once more, this suffering is not confined just to the bad guys, right? Or even those uh, who do not belong to the family of God's people. Christians, those whose father is this father in heaven, they suffer plenty, including in Iraq. More of them done to death for the sake of Christ this century than all the previous 19th centuries put together. And when that suffering is felt in the first person, when it takes up residence in your house especially, it can cause you simply to shake your head and say, where is God? Where is God? 
if God has set his king. That's a lot of rubbish. But there's a second thing as well. The story that we are constantly told in what I would rate as one of the most effective pieces of propaganda ever perpetrated is that it is not God who feeds the birds of the air. We're told the story that it is not God who clothes the grass of the field. That these are simply the blind laws of science. The biological determinism of survival of the fittest. That science has done away with the need for God. And that the power in which we must trust is not a father in heaven, but a father in a lab coat, patiently harnessing the forces of nature in yet further technological advancement. Now don't get me wrong, I'm all for technological advancement. I'm for scientists in white lab coats or even purple lab coats, if they like. And I hope if you're a scientist, you'll indulge a little in a bit of technicolor. <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing I'm not for. And that's when the storytellers of our modern age start turning this good gift of God, science and its application in technology, this good gift from God into a reason for abandoning belief in God. You see how those two things make actually the same point. What is really in control of your life? What is really the most powerful force in the universe? What is really the mind and will that determines how things will turn out? And the answer that's given to us in uh, these two questions is that there's not a mind or a will at all. It's at best the blind laws of science which we can frantically seek to control or more realistically it's simply nothing. The story we're told is that we live in a cold, dark wasteland. As the French writer André Mourois put it, the universe is indifferent. Who created it? Why are we here on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea. And I'm quite convinced that no one else has the least idea either. And he might as well have added, who is going to look after us? No one but ourselves. You see, in that world, worry makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? In that world, worry makes a lot of sense. In fact, who would not be anxious if that's the way the world is? For you see, the petrol in the tank of anxious worrying is the fear of powerlessness. That was the uh, lesson from my experience on the operating table. Utter powerlessness. And so, utter anxiety. And the big question, therefore, is just how powerless are we? See, this is what is at stake. Uh, here, perhaps more sharply than anywhere else in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. For who does Jesus say is the powerful one? Who does Jesus say holds the key to life and death? Who does Jesus say rules over everything? Down to even feeding the very birds of the air and clothing the grass of the field. It's the one that you know as your heavenly father. Or even more importantly, the one who relates to you as his own daughter, his own son. That one who is your heavenly father. A missionary by the name of uh, Eunice Pike worked with the Mazatec Indians in southwestern Mexico for more than 40 years. During that time, she discovered some interesting things 
uh, about this particular group of people. Uh, the people seldom wish someone else well. Not only that, they hesitate to teach one another or share their faith with each other. If asked who taught you to bake that bread, the village baker answers, I just know, meaning that he's acquired the knowledge without anyone's help. Uh, if Mr. Eunice Pike eventually realised that this odd behaviour stems from a concept of limited good. They believe that there's only so much good, there's only so much knowledge, there's only so much love to go around. To teach another person means that you might drain yourself of knowledge. To love a second child means that you have to love the first child less. To wish someone well, just as simple as have a good day, means that you've just given away some of your own happiness, which cannot be reacquired. Is that the kind of world we live in? You see, this is the most fundamental worldview question that, that goes. Is this the kind of world we live in, one of limited good? So often, I think, deep, deep down in the cold recesses of our souls, that is exactly what we think. That it's a cold, hard world. And so it's cold, hard people who sweat to eat the bread of anxious toil that survive. But Jesus confronts us and says, you see, no, you have one who is of unlimited good, unlimited grace, unlimited resources and love and mercy. Your Father in heaven who knows that you need all these things. See, what's the engine room of the Christian faith we looked at last week, of, of the Christian life we looked at last week? It's faith. The antidote to worry is to trust. To trust this one. Well, let me draw the thread together and try and uh, really apply this to our lives. It's a big challenge. First, three points of clarification. Notice carefully that Jesus is not saying several things. Jesus is not saying, do nothing, uh, just be lazy, uh, or indolent, simply a bludger, and the things will land on your doorstep. Uh, no, he's not saying, don't work, he's saying, don't worry. It's rather, we are to work. The New Testament uh, goes on and confirms that in many places. Uh, and for that matter, we are to plan and prepare for the future, but that we're to work and plan and prepare as Christians. As those who know that our grip on life and what lies ahead is terribly, terribly thin, you have no idea, frankly, what will have you this very afternoon. But that God's grip on us is utterly and absolutely solid. Now let's tie that down to at least one very practical thing. A former generation of Christians gave expression to this by never speaking about the future without saying God willing. Okay? Uh, so much so that it became a bit of a cliché. Uh, was then abbreviated to DB. And so if you talk with some old, uh, older, you know, mature members of the Christian church, uh, they'll say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm planning to go on a trip to, uh, you know, Bathurst, or other exciting places. Uh, I'm planning to go on a trip to Bathurst, DB. Uh, and DB is a, uh, a, an abbreviation of the Latin phrase, Deo Valenti, which means God willing. Uh, we don't do that much anymore, do we? We don't say God willing. Come straight out of James, actually, if you want to check it out. Uh, that we're not to just say what goes on in the future because we don't have control over our lives. 
I, I think it's a shame that this became a cliche. And I think it would be a good thing to recover it precisely in line with what Jesus says here. That we're not to worry about our future because God has it in control. Increasingly I find myself speaking about my plans as under God as a way to uh, capture this reality. That we live not without planning and preparation but by Christian planning and preparation subject to God. So firstly, Jesus is not saying don't work or don't plan. Secondly, Jesus is not saying that you will always be warm and well fed. Sickness and injury free and live on this earth forever. Uh, just as in the previous chapter he spoke of those who are blessed by God being persecuted. In a couple of chapters time, uh, chapter 10 verse 16 to 23, he's going to say that sending his disciples uh, out is like them going as sheep into the midst of wolves and warns them that they'll be flogged and betrayed and even put to death. Obviously, there is more to the kingdom than death. You see? And that's a crucial point. We'll come back to it in a moment. But so Jesus is not saying that this is rocket surgery. As a friend of mine puts it. Notice that mixed in with this is some very just kind of homey wisdom. Verse 27. And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? Uh, I could get driven up to school. And I knew that if I could hear the ABC News at 5 to 9 start, that I was going to be late to school because I was due at school at 5 to 9. I would get very worried. I was a very little anxious 10-year-old. You know, <laughs> some of us are like this. Some of us grow out of it, but I would stay there, really. And I was an anxious little 10-year-old. And my mum used to say this. I don't care the faintest clue that she was uh, quoting from Jesus, but she, just, she would say, worrying won't get you to school any earlier. And you know what? She was right. I just learned to enjoy the news, and so I became an educated person. <laughs> Instead of going to school. Right. Or Jesus says, verse 34, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. And you go, I'm into that. Plenty of worries for today. Just kind of get on today's trouble, deal with them, let tomorrow's deal with themselves. You know what Jesus says, you really are powerless. And that really is true, isn't it? You really are powerless, and you're worrying, quite apart from being a person of little faith, is just plain silly. Apparently, uh, and I, you might find this hard to believe, I find this hard to believe, but I read it on the internet, so it must be true. A dense fog covering seven blocks of the city, okay? Seven, you know, blocks. <laughs> 30 metres deep, so we're talking about a big fog, uh, contains less than one full glass of water. Mm, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? One full glass of water. All of those droplets taken out of proportion, right, that causes a lot of worry. You crash into things and so on. Worry is much like fog because it causes perspective to be clouded. It causes difficulty in manoeuvring the roads of life. It slows us down to where we really want to go in life. It's just plain dumb. The most important verse in all this is at the end of verse 25. You might have missed it on the way through. Jesus says, you ask yourself this question, is not life more than food and the, and the body more than clothing? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Well, what is he getting at here? You see, what, what Jesus is saying in saying not to worry is not just a kind of recommendation of the simple lifestyle as such. 
this is not an ad for sea change. You know, the kind of just drop out and take it a bit easier, become like Farmer Bob or whatever his name was. Like, what was the character's name in Sea Change? Diver Dan, yeah, Diver Dan. See, Marty, Marty Campus graduated, he has lots of worries, he's a staff worker, he wants to be Diver Dan. Actually, he looks a bit like Diver Dan. <laughs> Jesus is not saying, however, I think he does. He got all the girls. Anyway. <laughs> Jesus, sorry, thank you. Jesus is not saying, uh, don't worry about the luxuries of life and just concentrate on the simple things. Right? It's not just sort of the simple lifestyle. Jesus, you get this, this is very important. Jesus is not saying, don't worry about the luxuries of life and just concentrate on the simple things. He's saying something far more radical than that. He's saying, don't even worry about the simple things. The bare necessities. And he can only do that on the basis of a radical and complete revisioning of what life is all about in the first place. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And the answer is, in the kingdom of heaven, yes it is. Yes it is. His point is that life includes those necessities in their right place and with their right significance, but that life, the life that Jesus is on about, is not exhausted even by the necessities or by their lack. That is, you see, even what we call the necessities are not really necessities at all, for life is more than these things. How? Because real life, life properly understood, is eternal life. Life in the age to come. Life in the kingdom which transcends this life. Which includes this life but is longer and deeper and far more secure than it, even in the face of death. So what are the worries that you carry around? What are the anxieties which return to haunt you every now and again? Take them out. Have a, have a look at them. Is it financially? As you stare at the kind of employment uh, ads and wonder how you'd ever get enough experience to get a job. Is it relationally? As you seem to crash from one failure to the next and wonder if you'll ever find someone. Is it in terms of success? What, what are the things that worry you? Take them out and ask yourself, is God my Heavenly Father? Does He know my need? And if He knows, does He care about it at all? Can I actually trust God with my worries? For me, with my family's salvation. Can I actually trust God with my kids, with my mum and my sister? And in trusting him, can I be released from worry for them to constructive effort and prayer? Can I actually trust that God knows my financial and emotional and relationship needs, my lack of direction, that he knows about these things and that I'm of sufficient value to him that he will do something? Or can't? He doesn't care enough about me. He wouldn't bother with me. Jesus didn't come for me. Jesus' death doesn't apply to me. He didn't die for me. He couldn't care less. You see a heresy of worry? 
Job that really says about God. Let me make this point even a little bit more pointy. <laughs> One of the core purposes of the EU is to make people aware of the nature, needs and challenge of Christian service at home and abroad. That's a kind of quaint language back from the 40s or 50s or somewhere. But uh, it's a very important thing. And a big part of that is to put to people the whole issue of full-time ministry. <coughs> that is, making the teaching and preaching of the gospel your life's work. Now, there's a great deal to say about that. And in particular, we need to unpack how God sends labourers out into his harvest field as Jesus prays in just a couple of chapters' time. But I want to suggest that the most fundamental piece of the puzzle of full-time ministry to get in place is what Jesus speaks about here. You see, I suspect that the main thing that keeps highly talented, thoroughly trained, wonderfully gifted people like you out of the ministry is worry. You worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, or at least where you will live and what you will drive. You worry about what your friends and colleagues and perhaps even more importantly, your family will think of you and how you've thrown away your glittering career. And you worry about what it will cost you in energy and commitment and passion. And most of all, because of these worries, you don't ever really think about it. And you certainly don't ask God straight up whether he is sending you into his harvest. But you see how this massively powerful word from Jesus completely undercuts all of that. He says, don't worry about your life. God will take care of you. Don't worry about what you sacrifice. All these things will be given to you as well. Do you see how freeing this is? You don't have to worry. In fact, you have to not worry. So you're free. You really are free. You're free to serve God in whatever way suits you best. Or more importantly, in whatever way suits him best. You don't have to be just another drone standing on the escalator of life with a bored, numbed-out expression on your face trudging from school to uni to work in an office to home in the suburbs to retirement to hand it all on to someone else simply because everyone else is doing that. You're free because of your Father in heaven. Free to be different from the pack. Free in the loving care of the Father. Now you might go from school to uni to work in an office to a home in the birds and so on. But you do so not because it's unthinkable that you do anything else. Oh my goodness, I might not cut it. You do that because you believe in your conscience that that's what God would have you do. You believe that that's how you can make a contribution. That you're a teacher and say, you're going to teach people God's truth because all truth is God's truth. You're an accountant. You recognise that uh, equitable and uh, efficient distribution of resources is, is important and, and makes good lives for people. And so you get in in that game. You're an engineer and you realise the importance of building and of transportation and you say you make a contribution to serve God in that. But you do it freely, not as a drone on an escalator. And it's just possible that you might not do it at all. That you might pray to God to convict you that he's sending you into the ministry of the word. And following that conviction, 
You might do something completely crazy, like work in the Howard Ganesh Project as an apprentice minister here at Sydney University, replacing Martin Kemp. <laughs> Honing the skills and knowledge that you have built up. And you might spend more years foregoing an income, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Lunacy! Unless God is your Father in Heaven, King of all things, forego hundreds of thousands of dollars and be trained theologically to be a teacher of God's Word because the nature of this kind of Christian service is demanding and the need is overwhelming and the challenge is fantastic. But whatever you do, however you spend your life, you will do it without worry. Not driven by fear about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Instead, you will all the time be seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That righteousness for which you hunger and thirst. That righteousness for which you are prepared to endure persecution. Even the persecution of those who can't understand why you would waste your talent in the church. The righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees and makes you great in the kingdom of heaven. That's what you want to shoot for. And if you find yourself anxious or worried, you simply activate your will. You activate your will. You will yourself to believe what you know is true, even if you don't feel it, that God is your Father in heaven who takes care of his kids. That's not somehow inauthentic. It's faith. Like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is deadly serious about this. He really does mean it. What are you going to decline to worry about this week? What are you going to decline to worry about this week? What will you decline to worry about this year? What will you decline to worry about in the big picture of your life? That's right. Heavenly Father, we give you the praise of our hearts that you know what we need before we ask, that you understand us through and through far better than we ourselves. And we praise you that in your kingdom life is more than what we will eat, and what we will drink, and what we will wear. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would so fill us with your spirit, that you would so give us the faith that we need, that we would enter the joy and reality and glorious freedom that this is and serve you with a clear conscience. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.